0: john chapter 18 john chapter 18 will be in the esv translation if you're looking for what translation we generally use and it is page 850 if you're using the pew bibles 850 if i stay with it i did try to put the the scripture on the slides today as well but sometimes we get off track just a little bit not too bad John chapter 18, last week it was said that we were in what some have called one of the most wonderful, one of the most remarkable, one of the most useful chapters of all of Scripture, chapter 17 of John, being the prayer of Jesus. Well, today we come to one of the hardest chapters and one of the hardest sections of God's Word. And what appropriate songs we had today to, to just meditate upon as we sing and as we think about the situation with Jesus and his disciples we in. We come upon the hardest of sections as we look to the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus. And what we'll get to is also the denial of Jesus and the crucifixion of our great Lord. What we're about to read, is isn't a pretty picture. It isn't a pretty picture. Jesus will be betrayed and betrayed by one of his closest friends. What well, was he? You see, this is common to us as well. So often in life, we are betrayed. And it seems like it's from one of our closest friends, from somebody within our innermost circle. We never saw it coming. And it hurts greatly. But we must continue on with the plans of God. We must continue on living for God, taking the cup that He has given us just as Christ. But the different thing with, here, with, with what we see here in John 18 is although we often do not see it coming, and it's like we're just smacked in the side with a Mack truck or smacked by a bus as it hurts. Jesus knew it was coming God is in full control as he always is you see it isn't a pretty picture when we're betrayed when we're hurt and it's not a pretty picture here at all now I think you know what I mean when I say it isn't a pretty picture it means don't look at it don't even consider it it isn't pleasant it isn't pretty we know what this means Up to this point in our study of the Gospel of John, we've had many pretty pictures. We've had many great illustrations. We've had many great pictures of Christ teaching and having meals with his disciples and providing for his people. Teaching them the way to righteousness, the way to life, the way to truly live in the Father's will. But here, today, and in the coming weeks, we start to see the not-so-pretty pictures. But unlike some who choose to ignore these pictures of Christ and don't see him as as the true Savior that he is, the true God-man that he is, we must look to them. We must see the passion events for what they are. We must see the hard stuff, and we must come to accept them. But as we see his sufferings, We must also come to realize something else very important. Yes, they did happen. They did come come to be. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. But see this. As I said, he was in full control and it was not without purpose. It had meaning. His sufferings were for you. They are for me. They're for all of us. Let's read now in John chapter 18, verse 1 through 11 today. And let me just set the scene just briefly. Remember where we are. Remember where we've been. Remember where we're going. Jesus is done teaching in that upper room. He's done teaching his disciples. He's done talking, walking, and talking about the true vine and how we as believers, as disciples, true disciples, live as branches connected to the true vine being Christ. And as we are connected to the Father in that. All that's done. The prayer of Jesus, it's done. We read about that last week, and now he continues on with the plan that has already been set in motion, God's will. Jesus moves on. He knows his betrayal is coming, and he's ready, so he's going to go to that place. Let's read John 18, verse 1, says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. I want to take a brief break. This is the only break, I promise, in the scripture. But I want to talk about this garden. You see, when we piece together the other section of the scripture, we know this to be the garden of Gethsemane. And unlike the other, the other focus of the other gospel accounts, John will focus on one piece of information here. He will focus on the interaction between Jesus and The army, the mob which came for him. Between Jesus and Judas. Between Jesus and Peter. Here focus on his arrest. Not his suffering, not his sorrow, not his time in prayer with the Father. But I do want to make one note to this Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is said to mean an olive press. It was an oil press area, it said. Some commentators relate this to Jesus saying, just as olives are pressed, Jesus would soon be pressed. He would endure all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our pain. His blood would be drained. All for redemption. You see, Jesus was about to be pressed out into the events surrounding the crucifixion. This is the starting point of his suffering here for us. Let's read on. On verse 2 of John 18, it says this, Now Judas, who betrayed him, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken saying, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Thank for following along with the scripture today, and I pray and I know we will be blessed in it. We'll be blessed with the reading of his word as it edifies us. It continues to sanctify us, to make us more into Christ's image. To grow us more into who we are meant to be by God. To comfort us and to challenge us. In today's text, in today's scripture, we have illustrated several different subjects, several different people of which we'll discuss. We also have one major scene. In this, we see Jesus. We see his disciples we see Judas, the betrayer. We see a band of soldiers, or what some translations translate it as a discord of soldiers. We also see officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. Well, we're going to look to these people, these subjects. But most importantly, most significantly, we're going to look to Christ. But we will describe the scene. And then in closing, we're going to talk about how does this relate to us today? But first, let's start with that scene. Let's start with the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, we're not going to focus on it as much here as what we did in Mark or what we have in other, other gospel accounts, because the focus here isn't on the garden. John's focus here is on Jesus. But I do have some comments on the garden here, comments of which many pastors throughout history and many scholars have talked about, and it is this. It's very interesting to think about the garden in this way. It's very impactful to us as well. You see, in the beginning, the way sin entered the world and the way that our fellowship with God was broken was through a garden and through the first Adam and Eve. Well, here we have another garden, but through this garden would be the beginning of a process, a plan being enacted not to continue to break that fellowship, but to bring that fellowship back with God together to fix what was broken through the second Adam, the perfect man, Jesus. Through Jesus and through this garden would come a way to redemption, a way to peace, a way to atonement for sin, a way back into God's fellowship, peace. We see Jesus and his disciples come to this garden, but it's not coincidental, it's not without purpose. Jesus is here for his time has now fully come. And what courage he shows in coming to this garden, knowing all. Jesus knows all. Jesus is here for several reasons, though. One, I truly believe, and we see this in the other gospel accounts, that Jesus is here for a place of solitude. Jesus is here retreating away from the city to have time with the Father in prayer. And to work through the actions which are about to be done to him through his own creation. Through his own people. But again, the focus here isn't on his time with the Father. The focus here is not on his time in sorrow. John here focuses on, just like all of John, as he focuses on Christ, he focuses on describing Christ's deity, his divinity, his godliness, his equalness with God. So the time here in John focuses not on the sorrow or struggle John focuses on Christ's deity, and that's our theme for today. Our theme is that we're focusing on Jesus being in full control in the Garden of Gethsemane to enact glory in God's plan, and Jesus is also in full control today as well. John focuses on the betrayal, but in this one cannot help but see how Jesus was always in control, even with the betrayal, even with the betrayal. An interesting note, even when people betray us, we can use it for God because God intends that to be used for him. All things of evil and bad will be used for his continual glory and goodness. You see, every step on the way to the cross is planned and fully controlled by Jesus for God's glory and for his and our benefit. Let me repeat that again. Every step on the way to the cross is planned. And fully controlled by Jesus, who knows all things and is omniscient and divine. And it's all for God's glory and for his and our benefit. It's for us. It's for us. I'm going to say this later, but I'm going to say it again right now. You see, I often look at, and you do as well, I'm sure, you look at the Garden of Gethsemane as a sorrowful place. And it is. But it's also a place of great victory, as it's the starting place for Christ to go to the cross for us. Let's focus more on Jesus here. Jesus betrayed the scene that we have at hand. In the scripture, we see Jesus knows all, and he was prepared for what is coming. In fact, in the scripture here, it tells us this. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, you can underline this if you're following along, you can circle it, highlight it. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward. Came forward. Jesus knows all. Now some say in him, in him even going to this place it illustrates how he knew all because he knew that his time had come. And he needed to go to this place outside the city to create the most opportune place for Judas to now come. For Judas not to be shy, not to be scared away, not for the officers the, of, the, of the court not to be scared of the city people or a mob coming after them for coming after Jesus. No, Jesus went out of the city to a silent place, to a desolate place to make it easy. Not easy for him to hide, easy for them to find. Jesus goes to a place, and in this place, it's not unknown to all. It's not to hide. It's quite the opposite. It's to be found. Scripture tells us this in John 18, verse 2. It was a common place for the disciples to go. If Jesus was going to a place to hide... He wouldn't have gone there. Also in Jesus knowing all, we see a great mob coming with torches to look for him, expecting him to be hard to find. Notice they, they brought forth torches, light, because they thought they might need to find where Jesus is hiding. But Jesus knowing all and knowing are coming, notice Jesus went to them. Jesus went to them. How often do we cower away in fear and, and avoid what we know is coming instead of hitting it head on and dealing with it? Jesus knew what was coming. What bravery, what devotion to the plan that was set in motion by God to save his people. He went to them. Jesus is omniscient. That means he knows all things. He is God divine. And Jesus being in full control goes to them. Let's read this scripture starting at verse 4 to to see this further illustrated with how he interacts with the soldiers. And note, this is is only described in John. Again, John focuses on the interaction with the soldiers, with his arrest and the betrayal. It says this, verse 4 to 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice they're not recognizing him as the Christ. They're not recognizing them how they truly should and to what he deserves in his deity. They're simply stating his name and where he's from. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Now listen, listen and look how Jesus answers them. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And at this moment, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? Now, I can just envision here that as Jesus asked them again, I would at least hope they were a little bit more hesitant in answering it doesn't say this, so it's probably not relevant or not that important to us. Or maybe God just knows it should be obvious. But I can imagine at that first calling, they answered and they fell backwards to the ground. I can imagine as they're, they're asked now to answer a second time, they're going to consider their words a little bit more. Maybe they're going to be bracing themselves a little bit more. And they might be a little bit shaky. But they answer nonetheless, and we see God, Jesus' humility, his mercy, in how he treats them from here. After, now I believe he got his point across, by the way. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So... If you seek me, focus on me, insist on me, let these men go. Focus on his disciples, his apostles, whoever else was with him at that time. And this, we're told, was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I lost not one. Now, thank for following along. I want you to see, further see, further understand this point. Jesus is in full control. Jesus is guiding the situation to be exactly what God has planned and to fulfill all the prophecies and exactly what needed to be done. Notice, take note, Jesus does not wait to be found. Jesus goes to them. He came forward, Scripture says here. Jesus also does not wait for them to speak. He speaks first. He starts the conversation. He guides the conversation as he says to them. Who do you seek? And in so guiding this conversation, he is at this point already setting up the protection of his people and the recognition for who he truly is and who he's going to be. When they answered, they answered with Jesus of Nazareth. And they answered simply with a name, but not in recognizing his deity and who he truly is. They answered not with reverence, not with fear, not in worship, as one commentator stated, and I love this, they didn't fall forward at his feet, they fell backward to the ground. Now, I also read that when it says, I am he, the truer meaning of this is I am. As there is not the word he in Greek, it's simply there for us to better understand Notice that I am is also the same very statement used to describe God and his name in Exodus to Moses. Jesus is the great I am, yet the Father is the great I am. He is divine. He is deity. He is omniscient, all-knowing. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Nothing has changed here. What's changed is that they come seeking Jesus, not recognizing that this very Jesus is also the Messiah in God. Also notice in declaring his identity, his divine identity, they fall. I want to talk about that just a bit more. You see, there's two ways of interpretation here. Some have said that as they fall backward, when he said, I am he or I am, it wasn't truly that they were falling to the ground. It was that they were falling backwards into a defensive position with their weapons, waiting for whatever this Jesus was going to do. I don't believe that's so. It's an interesting thought. But I believe the collapse of the soldiers came in reaction to a small taste of the divine power of Christ. If he had chosen to do so, he could have exercised his divine power to sufficiently escape his arrest and crucifixion. He could have called down legions of angels to be at his side. If he even needed that, which he didn't, he could have just spoken a word and it all would have gone away. But that would not have been what the plan was. It would not have been what we needed. It wouldn't have been the redemption for us. Jesus speaks his name and they fall backward. One pastor stated, I love this. He said, the words of Jesus really pack a punch, don't they? They were greeted by the one who spoke the world into existence, another pastor said. And wow, what irony to think that they came as a mob with lanterns and swords, weapons to overtake Jesus. But they had truly no power against Christ. One word and Jesus could have made it all go away. If Jesus allowed his fullness of deity to be seen, they would not be able to get back again unless he willed it to be. And while all of this is impressive, it's still pretty humble to think about Jesus' power and to think that even at this, when they fell backwards, he could have just walked away. Or he could have kept them there, holding them down. But Jesus let him back up because that's what was needed. Jesus lets them get back up he asks them again, Who do you seek? And again, he says, I am he. I am the man you seek. I am the Jesus of Nazareth. But in answering, I am, he was telling them much, much more as well. Now, why does Jesus ask this once again to them? Why does he ask them, whom do you seek? And why does he say it twice? Well, for one, I don't think they were fully recognizing just who they were seeking, Or I think they would have ran and fleed themselves. They would have extinguished their own lanterns so that they wouldn't have been found. But then again, in another sense, I think they at least had some bit of understanding to Christ's power. They just didn't recognize truly who he was. For Scripture also defines them coming What's a great mob of people, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests or Pharisees, it says. What some translations calls a band of soldiers, it calls a discord of soldiers. And depending on your historical interpretation of this, that could have been anywhere from 200 to 1,200 people. In one one interpretation, when it says they brought a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, they take it to mean that they brought Roman soldiers. And a discord of soldiers or a band of soldiers could be anywhere from 200 to 1,200 people. In another interpretation, they take that that statement just to be all combined. They They take a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests to be one thought and then maybe it was a smaller group either way we see they took him seriously enough to know not just to take judas and one or another they took a mob a mob possibly hundreds came against jesus and a few disciples and one sword of peter one sword of peter there's so many little fine details here (coughs) that if i had time i'd go into One little detail, for instance, is it said that on this day, the the night of Passover, and what could have possibly been after midnight, maybe about 3 a.m. in the morning, none of them should have had weapons on them at all. It was against the law of Passover, against the traditions. And yet, Peter still has his. And as we're seeing a moment, maybe he's even thinking to himself, look, Jesus said I would deny him, and not just once, but three times. Well, look... I'm going to lay down my life for him. I'm going to swing this sword, which he probably shouldn't have had. And then the officers, the soldiers, even officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, they came with weapons. But let's move forward. We don't have time to to talk about all that. Another reason why Jesus asked the men to... Who they seek. And this is the most obvious one of which we cannot just contemplate because it's here in Scripture. Is this? In verses 8 to 9, it says, So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now, another interesting note, again, trying to watch that clock just a little bit, is this. He has lost not one. He will lose not one because he doesn't consider Judas of losing one. Judas Iscariot was the betrayer. He, he did not lose Judas. Judas left him and it was already planned. It was already known to be. It was known to come. Christ knew that although he was in his innermost circle, he knew he would leave. So, why does jesus ask these questions i put down four reasons here number one to show control jesus was in full control and he is showing from the very beginning that although these soldiers come to arrest him he lays his own life down just as we read in john 10. number two to show his deity his divine identity number three to fulfill the scriptures and number four And the most important is we see it right here. He is setting up protection for his disciples of whom he desired not to be lost, not to be taken, or to suffer. And I wrote that word yet because we know his disciples will suffer just as we will suffer. But they weren't ready for this type of persecution yet. Yet. For Christ still had to take the cup. The cup was meant for him, not for them. You see, our salvation was not meant to be bought with the sword at this point. It was not meant to be bought by Peter. It wasn't meant to be bought by his disciples. It was meant to be bought by Christ taking the cup of suffering. Jesus desires to provide the same level of protection to us today. Except today, we don't need to wait for the crucifixion of the Christ. We don't need to wait for the helper, the Holy Spirit either. It has already come to be. We already have Christ, the Messiah, and all of his glory. We already have the Holy Spirit within us as well. And we can soak in his protection. We can recognize his great kindness, his love, his courage for all. We're almost through the scripture, but we can't forget about Peter. Verses 10 to 11 states, Then Simon Peter, having a sword... Drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is Peter's brash, impulsive, passionate, brave, but all too earthly minded actions shown. Can we relate here? How often do we try and take control ourselves instead of pursuing God's purpose, God's control, following what God has already laid out? Peter has the proper attitude. He wants to defend Christ. He wants to defend his his brother. He wants to defend God. But he does it all at the wrong time. I wrote down that we, like Peter, often jump into action trying to take control of all the situations to change the narrative that's being wrote out. When really what we are called to do is accept this situation for what it is, God's will. And in accepting this, see God's glory to come and how he does not leave you alone to work through this. Jesus needed not protection. He needed to go forth and drink the cup prepared for him. And I just want to note, if you dig into some commentaries, you can see some other great details about this incident here. Such as, did Peter mean to cut off the ear? Or was he aiming for the head? Was he aiming to split him in two? There's good interpretation both ways and some very interesting facts. Such as, the servant's name there could indicate that he was a servant to one of the most high priests in the court. And one of the laws that they had was a dis Infigured individual could not serve in the court as it would be an embarrassment So there could have been purpose for him going for the ear. There could be purpose why Why john's gospel gives us this name and the other gospels do not give us this name But again, so often we focus on the things that don't truly matter. Let's look to what we have here the cup the cup here You see, the cup in scripture can signify many things, but the cup here signifies the suffering of the cross for the atonement of our sin. That is what Christ is here to lay his life down for. That is the cup which he was going to take. That is the cup that nobody else could take away. For even if they did, it would not accomplish the purpose that was needed. As we work to close, I just have a few thoughts Closing thoughts on Jesus here, and then some take-homes. You see, despite the actions of many here, we can see not just Jesus' full control and not just his deity, but we see Jesus' kindness and love. We see Jesus' kindness to Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, for he did not seek revenge against Judas, vindication... He knew what was going to happen, and he didn't stand there waiting for Judas to smite him down. In fact, some say that maybe Jesus would have even allowed his forgiveness if it would have been sought. Jesus shows Judas kindness and allows his plan to come about. And in this we see Judas betrays not just himself, not just Jesus, but himself also. We see that Judas chose not the light of Christ, but the light of lanterns. And it would be his demise. It would be his demise. We also see kindness towards the soldiers from Jesus and towards the arresting mob. After all, Jesus could have spoken them out of existence. But again, this would not have accomplished the purpose. We also see kindness towards Peter. Which, by the way, we know Peter. Jesus accomplishes his purpose and protection. Peter is not arrested. Not here, not now. Peter would go on to deny Christ. Kindness, we also see kindness towards his own and protecting them from arrest, not just Peter. We see kindness towards all in creating a path to redemption from sin and eternity with God. But yet, despite all this kindness, all this love, we still see Judas come forward and kiss Jesus using one of the, one of the biggest gestures of love in betrayal. Jesus shows kindness to us as well recognize that. Jesus pursuing this path of suffering shows us kindness and love. Let's work to close with a few take-homes now, some lunch table conversations, car ride conversations. 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25 says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd the overseer of your souls. I wrote down, How often do you remember that through himself bearing our sins, we not only need not die to sin, but we now have a protector, a shepherd, an overseer of our souls. I wrote down for you to see here, As believers, we are weak and vulnerable on our own. But with the Lord's protection, his divine strength and provision... All believers are not just secured today, but eternally secured forever. I pray that we might grasp that more with each day. Because the Christian's life will often, for divine purposes, involve many of our own cups of suffering that we must take. And we must take them. We must willingly submit, just like Jesus, to the divine love of God and his plan to come to be but we must also see that his protection is still there and he will help us endure forever. We will endure the extreme injustices in this world, especially as Christians, but we must continue to submit to the sovereign Lord's plan through it all. Don't strive to be a Peter. Don't seek vindication. Seek the cup of God's plan and glory and take comfort in the fact that your savior understands your struggles and he'll be there with you. One final thought here, a thought on Gethsemane. It's so easy to think of Gethsemane as a place of evil and suffering, but we can look upon Jesus' Gethsemane and our metaphorical Gethsemanes today and see that even what the evil one means for bad will always be used for the glory of God. Our response to our gardens of Gethsemane should not be pity, but bravery, bravery like our Jesus. The Gethsemane of Jesus was not a tragedy. And neither are our Gethsemanes. Seek the Lord and let others see that he is still in full control. And that this is not the end. As Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that although we may have points of extreme stress in our lives through taking that cup, Pursuing God and His glory, His greatness, His plan, His will, He will continue to be there with us and for us through it all. I encourage you all to fall not backwards like the soldiers when you encounter God in your daily lives. Fall forward in worship, in devotion, in adoration at God's greatness and His protection for our souls forever. Let's close in prayer and one final song. And then I invite you all to come to.